I'd like you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now I want to, I want to, I want to tell you what I'm going to tell you. And then I'm going to tell you what I told you I was going to tell you. Okay? And then we'll hopefully have time for questions based on what I told you I was going to tell you that I told you. Does that make sense? We're talking about this subject in the context of the person of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. I think it's critical for us to understand who he is and what he does, what his purpose is. And amongst all the things he does, uh, this subject called the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, I think, critical to understand. What does the New Testament teach about this subject? My concern is that there, that phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit, is misused. And it is an accurate phrase, accurate statement. It comes from the New Testament. But I think it's misused by many and misunderstood by many. And I think that the way it's used very often leads to, uh, number one, harm to the New Testament, harm to the Scriptures. We, we distort what the Scriptures say. Secondly, it can lead to confusion on the part of many. I've already had several people say, you know, you've been clearing up so much confusion for me. Uh, many people raised in, in Pentecostal uh, charismatic backgrounds and uh, they, they just they were confused about these things, and, and, and now there's some clarity coming to them. Um, and thirdly, um, the improper use of that term can lead to division in the church. And, and again, we're, you know, there's all sorts of things that divide us, all sorts of things that pose uh, challenges to us. And uh, where we can, the best we can, we want to minimize those things and try to address them. Uh, we're never, ever going to going to have a church that doesn't experience some kind of splintering and and trouble and difficulties. But the reality is is when we see them, we do our very best to try to reconcile them. And and this is one of those issues that's very, very serious. So the question is, again, I want to talk to you about the experiences that people have. A number of us, if not all, certainly have had some kind of, of transforming realization, experience of God in our life that's, that's changed us, that's marked us, that's that made God ever, ever so much more real uh, than ever before. And so do we, what do we do with those? Now, typically, in, in most of the Pentecostal and or charismatic backgrounds, that's described as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I hope to bring some clarity to, and I'm going to give you some other ways to describe that experience. But we have to lay some groundwork again. What I've suggested to you in the past is that in the, the New Testament teaches... That phrase, it teaches baptism uh, with the Holy Spirit that it is not a second stage experience for some Christians, but rather it is an initiatory experience for all Christians. And we get this from what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Here is his testimony. Here's a statement. He says, uh, for we were all, now notice this, baptized by one spirit into one body. You could translate that in, with, by, uh, that preposition can be translated any, any one of those three ways uh, in the Greek, and most translations have it in various ways. The NIV has it translated uh, by the Holy Spirit. He says, whether we're Jewish or Greeks or we're slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. 
that last part of that verse where he says, and we were all given the one spirit to drink, this is where many interpreters will take that phrase to mean this is the second experience. What they don't understand, and they're not students of Paul and how he writes, Paul is very redundant, and he, what he does, very simply, part of his style, is to say the same thing he did in the first part of the verse with the second part of the verse, he just says it differently. Okay, that's his point. He's not saying, okay, you got baptized in the Spirit, and now this is the second experience. Uh, you have, just have to understand stylistically how he writes, and this is how he does. He just, he's just being repetitive. He's being redundant, if you will. So now, if this is what the New Testament teaches about baptism in the Holy Spirit, the question is, how is it that so many uh, Christians, uh, genuine, sincere, zealous Christians, uh, use that very term uh, to, to describe this? How, many, how, many, how is it that so many people use that term in a different sense than what Paul intended it to be used in? Why do they refer it to some second experience? This is the typical issue. And this is what I hope to bring some clarity to. It is, I think, in that very word, experience, that the answer lies. I've had an experience. What is this experience? What do I call it? Do I just call it an experience? Does the Bible talk about this? Now, we went back and we studied... If you recall, if you're with us, we studied uh, uh, Acts chapter 8, uh, the, the Samaritans. We, uh, we looked at Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. Uh, we looked at uh, the conversion of the Gentiles through Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. We looked at the conversion of the Ephesians in Acts chapter 19. All of those passages in the book of Acts are traditionally looked at as second experience works, and they are the foundation for a theology that says the baptism of the, spirits of the Spirit is a second experience. Now, are you tracking with me still? Have I confused you already? Okay, so you're with me. So I'm being redundant, aren't I? It's very, very important to understand the context. And, and so people say, well, where do I get this experience? And they're taught, well, here's the experience. They, they, don't know, they don't have a name. They don't have a place to hang it, how to identify it, describe it. So they're taught, well, this is what it is. And they go to the book of Acts and they cite these examples. But if you read and study those those passages in their context, and you understand what Luke's trying to say, then it doesn't necessarily lead to the same conclusion. You have to go to what Paul writes, and what does Paul say about this subject called baptism of the Holy Spirit? People have an overwhelming experience of the Spirit of God, an experience that literally changes their lives. We're not denying the experience. Experiences are real, and God does move. He is real. He doesn't mean for us to live sterile lives, avoid of any opportunity to experience him and experience his work in our lives. So, so please don't misunderstand and don't hear that we're denying the experience. The experiences are very real, and they're very powerful, and they're very life-transforming. I've had them. Any number of you have had them and have experienced God in just remarkable, personal, and powerful ways. Amen? And so... These experiences, just like, if you will, if I can, if I can equate that to, uh, remember Jacob wrestling with God uh, back in Genesis chapter 32 and, and how he was transformed after that. It's the same kind of thing. You're, you're not the same person after that event. You're different. You're, you're richer. You have a richer understanding. And, uh, and your life is, is quite frankly, uh, moving more vibrantly than it had before uh, the experience. So we, we attach this label, unfortunately, to these experiences, 
And uh, I suggest to you that it probably is not the best thing to do. I want to cite to you an example, a classic example, uh, from the early 70s. And uh, I, I came to the Lord in the 70s, and amidst the, this just terrific emphasis on, on uh, charismatic renewal, and, and a lot of churches were sweeping, uh, Calvary chapels came into existence, a lot of independent churches, charismatic churches came into existence in that arena, the first vineyard uh, came into existence uh, back then, Hope Chapel uh, came into existence back then uh, in, in the 70s, in, the, in, the, in the, uh, the, the time of what's known as the Jesus Movement. Uh, and some of you are you, you're nodding because you understand and you, you're part of that process. A man by the name of Graham Polkingham uh, wrote a book, Gathered for Power. Now, he was uh, an Episcopalian, raised in the Episcopalian church, and uh, he, he became an Episcopalian priest. And this is his account, uh, and I just excerpted uh, just some of, his, uh, some of his language. He probably is the most celebrated and uh, classic example of what we're talking about. And he tells of the, the liberal environment of the Episcopalian uh, church in which he had been brought up and uh, of his appointment to the Church of the Redeemer in Houston. And uh, he's, he, he speaks of uh, his, his grief over the condition of the church and his apparent powerlessness to uh, do anything in the face of the depressed condition of the church and as well the depressed condition of the community uh, surrounding the church in which the church was in the midst of. He talks of his longing for a deeper experience of God. All of this around him drove him, if you will, if I can use that word, uh, drove him to seek a deeper experience of God. He was, he was just utterly dependent upon God. And this is part of the key of this whole process. And he tells of meeting a man by the name of David Wilkerson. And David Wilkerson, again, was a pastor in New York uh, who at that time uh, was famous for uh, his ministry to gangs. He wrote a book called The Cross and the Switchblade. Probably a number of you have read that. And it's, a, it's a, again, I, I could put it in the, in the category of a classic, if you will. And he met David Wilkerson, and he went with David to a home for rescued prostitutes uh, that Wilkerson's ministry had sponsored and they were providing for. He said, quote, I was here, it was here that I received the baptism of the Spirit. Now, he had no other name to call it. This was a, a totally new experience for him, but obviously, in retrospect, he calls it that because that's what he was told to call it. He was told by Wilkerson to kneel down in this environment, and then Polkingham recalls, I, I knelt, and they came across the room hurriedly, when their hands touched my head, something inside of me leaped with gladness. And even the unusual manner of their prayer was not offensive. It was loudly proclaimed in languages that were entirely foreign to me. So apparently Pokingham had no idea and no experience with tongues. And so these, these men were praying over him in tongues, laying hands over him. And this was totally brand new to him. He goes on to say that almost immediately, all awareness of the men their prayers of the room, and even of myself was obliterated by the immense presence of God's power. He was unmistakably there. And my inner response was like the clatter of a bamboo wind chime in a gale. The very foundations of my soul shook violently. So this is a powerful experience, obviously. He goes on to say that he bowed low before the greatness of God and wept at his own unworthiness. 
Now, this is how Graham Polkingham describes the experience of God which transformed his Christian life. Now, some would say, well, was he a Christian in the first place? He professes to be. He, there's categorically, clearly a Christian. But the, he had an experience that transformed his Christian life, transformed his Christian experience. Do we deny the experience? No. We believe the experience is real. We see them again and again and again, Old Testament, New Testament. We don't deny those. He says there followed in him a, a, a new gladness, a new power in ministry, in healing, in preaching, a freedom in prayer and worship that heretofore he had never known. Now the question I pose, how could Polkingham call the experience which triggered off such mighty revolutions in all that he had known as Christianity by a lesser name than baptism in the Holy Spirit? It is very understandable, I think, for Christians with experiences of God, just like Polkingham's, to call the experience baptism in the Holy Spirit. But all the same, I think it is mistaken. Why? That's all they've been taught to call it. Without studying the scriptures critically. This is not, I suggest to you, how the New Testament relates baptism and the Holy Spirit. Always, as we have seen, the baptism in the Spirit is an initiatory event. It's that which initiates us. It's that which causes us to enter into, to become a Christian, into the body of Christ. It's an initiatory event. The Holy Spirit brings people into the family of God. And it is utterly confusing, I believe, to speak of the Spirit baptizing people who have already been baptized. Again, if you go back to Paul's words, when he tells us, for we are all baptized by one spirit into one body. So to say, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And if you're already a Christian and you know that passage, you know your theology, you say, yes, I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. But do you speak in tongues? Uh, Well, no. Then you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. Paul says, I am baptized in the Holy Spirit. Do you see how confusing that could be? And that's what happens for so many people. And it is a confusion uh, that leads to several, three, in fact, unfortunate results. Uh, a distortion of the scriptures. Confusion. And thirdly, divisiveness. Let me, let me elaborate on those just a little bit. You have to either neglect or distort what the New Testament has to say about spirit and baptism if you hold to the position that the second experience is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For example, another author from the 70s, uh, Dennis Bennett. Some of you remember that. And uh, there were a number of, 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 of authors and writers who were very, very, very moved and, and, and uh, wrote books, and, and Bennett is one of them. And he wrote his book, The Holy Spirit and You. And he does an interesting thing. He quotes Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5. And and we looked at that passage a number of weeks ago. And in that passage, there are seven statements of unity. You have it on the screen. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God, one Savior, and so forth. And if you read the passage, you see that. 
So he quotes that passage. It says one baptism. But he continues. And he says, yet it is clear in the New Testament that the one baptism divides into three. Now I submit to you that, that you, could read, you could read what he writes and you could read that and it would seem to make sense to you because you know about this baptism that Paul talks about in Romans, or I'm sorry, in Corinthians, right? And then you hear about or you experience or you're told about this baptism of the Spirit, second experience, and then you're told about your water baptism. So you could read that and that would make sense in that context. Unless you read critically. Unless you say, well, what, what does the scriptures really say? So he refers his readers, if you will, to the spiritual baptism. If you go back to that verse 13, when Paul says, we've all been baptized by one spirit into one body. He's referencing that verse, and he says, look, we've all been baptized by the Spirit as soon as we receive Jesus as Savior. Do we, would we agree with that? Would we agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what that verse says. As soon as you receive Christ, you're baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. You become a member of the church. Now, this is followed, he says, by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, meaning... Uh, now, this indwelling Holy Spirit, Spirit of Jesus, uh, is poured forth to manifest Jesus to the world through your life. That's what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, according to Dennis Bennett. So this is the second baptism. And then either before or after the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the second one, there was the outward sign of baptism with water. I submit to you that can be very confusing if, you're, if you understand what you're reading. Is it three or one? Is it one baptism? Do we divide the one baptism into three? Is that, what, is that what the New Testament teaches? I don't think you can find that anywhere in the New Testament. Certainly Paul doesn't talk about that, clearly. And in order to differentiate between the three, he goes further. He, he adds words to make the distinction between the three. Like the first one, uh, he says... The being baptized into Christ with reference to Paul's words here in Corinthians. He said, this is the spiritual baptism into Christ. And then the second one, which would mean the experience, he said he would describe that as baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, wait a minute. The first one's a spiritual baptism. Then the second one is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. I'm already baptized by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? It does to me. Of course, I've been doing this for a long time now. And then the, the, the water baptism, which would be the third baptism, according to his logic, would be the quote-unquote outward sign of baptism with water. What I want to suggest to you is that God has joined those three together in significance. However, they may differ in time, and however they may differ when they are experienced, they're all the same. They're all brought together. They're not three different baptisms. Baptism in water is, and this isn't in your notes, but it's on the screen. This is very, very important for you. Baptism in water is the sacramental symbol of repentance and faith on the one hand and the gift of the Spirit on the other. They all belong together. 
and I believe we do harm to the New Testament if we use that phrase, baptism in the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit to refer to a second experience for Christians. That's just one problem that comes up. The second problem is the problem of being confused. Once you use that phrase in that way, you immediately put yourself in, I think, theological trouble. Because it is plain, again, from the Apostle Paul's writings in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So by definition, all Christians have the Spirit. How is it then that they have to have the Spirit on the one hand, but have not received the baptism of the Spirit on the other? Wait a minute, either I have the Spirit or I don't. Either I'm baptized in the Spirit or I'm not. You're telling me there's two baptisms of the Spirit. And when you understand this, you think, that doesn't square with what I read from the Scriptures. Dennis Bennett again says this in his book, The Holy Spirit and You. He says, because you have received Jesus, you already have the Holy Spirit, so no one needs to give him to you. Now, what do we believe about that? Do we agree or disagree? How many agree? How many disagree? How many aren't sure? A lot of hands didn't go up. Okay, one person's on and says, I'm not sure. Let me read it again. He says, because you have received Jesus, you already have the Holy Spirit, so no one needs to give him to you. Amen? Yeah, we agree with that. Sure, sure. And then he goes on to say, in the next, very next sentence, Jesus is living in you. Do we agree? Now, here's where the problem was. He is ready to baptize you in the Holy Spirit as soon as you are ready to respond. Wait a minute. I've already been baptized in the Holy Spirit. According to how Paul defines it. He calls baptism with the Holy Spirit a deep experience of God, which involves another dynamic. Can you think of what that other dynamic might be? Speaking in tongues. He says it involves speaking in tongues. Now, we're not denying tongues. I speak in tongues. I had a dramatic experience. But he says that baptism of the Spirit involves speaking in tongues, invariably. He, let me quote him. He says, we have shown that speaking in tongues is indeed a common denominator in examples of the baptism in the Holy Spirit given in the Scriptures. Now, he's going back to support his thesis. He's going back, he's drawing that from those passages in the book of Acts where people spoke in tongues. But again, he's isolated those passages to suit his purpose to give us this doctrine of baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second experience. Are you making, is my making sense? Are you tracking with me? In other words, for Dennis Bennett, speaking in tongues seems to be an essential part of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, the implication would be, if he's right, and you don't speak in tongues, then what else has not happened to you? You have not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So you now what? You probably haven't got it. Which would lead you to think, wait a minute, I thought I was in. I thought I got the Holy Spirit. What's the deal here? You see how that can create some problems? 
Now, this is the very reason why Paul writes the 12th, 13th, and 14th chapters of 1 Corinthians. Because the Corinthians were majoring in what? What were they majoring in? Tongues. They were majoring in tongues. And Paul, Paul writes, he says, tongues is a very personal and very private thing. It's not meant to be expressed in the general congregation. Now, I know, he says, you know, if anyone speaks in a tongue in the congregation, it would be two or three at the most, and so forth and so forth, and then pray for an interpreter. But he's try- what you, you have to understand, he's trying to bring some, some measure of order out of chaos because they were all speaking in tongues all over the place. So he's minimizing it. He says, look, two or three at the most. He's accommodating them. But in reality, he says, a man who speaks in a tongue speaks to God. It is a language that God gives us so that you can pray and you can talk to God. And sometimes your mind is not fruitful, he says. It's not meant to be. And so he writes these chapters, 12, 13, and 14, to bring order where there's chaos. These Corinthians, like so many other ways, were were, uh, just kind of all over the map. And Paul stresses the one spirit though he manifests himself in various ways in the body of Christ into which all Christians are baptized. How does the Holy Spirit manifest himself in various ways in the body of Christ? How does, now listen to what I just said. How does the Holy Spirit manifest himself in the various ways in the body of Christ? Spiritual gifts. One body Many parts, many gifts. That's how he manifests himself. Is the whole body an ear? Is the whole body an eye? Is the whole body a foot? No, multiple, multiple parts. He manifests himself through various ways. So Paul writes these three chapters to give the Corinthians a right perspective on spiritual gifts, and more particularly to correct the error that they were finding themselves in with respect to tongues. Now hear me, I'm not, I'm not saying tongues is a bad thing. I'm not saying tongues is, doesn't exist. I'm not saying that tongues has ceased. We have many, many godly pastors and teachers and scholars who would say today that they're, they're cessationists. That means that the, that the gifts of the Spirit do not function today like they did in the New Testament. I, I, I categorically disagree. Understand that, please. The third thing, unfortunate result of using this uh, phrase, I think inappropriately, is division. Simply division. And you have this deep experience with God. And supposedly marked by able to speak in tongues, but it ultimately can lead to division if, you, if you're overemphasizing that. The New Testament makes it very, very plain that a person who has the Holy Spirit is very different from the person who does not have the Holy Spirit. Would you agree with me? You are either in the Spirit or you're not. You're in the Spirit or you're in the flesh. You're a believer or you're not a believer. I mean, the New Testament is very, very clear on that. But many Pentecostals, many Charismatics tend to transfer this Christian dualism, if you will, this either-or, to the experience they have labeled baptism of the Holy Spirit. Those who have the baptism are in 
Those who don't have the baptism are out. They're not in. Now, that's not necessarily voiced, but it's certainly felt. It's certainly sensed. A number of you have come from those backgrounds, and, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Much of the trouble, I suggest again, is due to this use of the phrase baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's a semantic thing. It's how we use words. Words mean something, true? And it's the words we use, and what do we mean? What meaning are we assigning to them? And you can use a word, you can use a phrase, and it can lead somebody right down a wrong path, can it? For baptism means beginning. That's the whole point. It's initiation. It is the initiatory event of a Christian life. It's the initiatory event and experience of your Christianity, both spiritually and as well temporally through your water baptism. And if believing Christians are told that they must be baptized in the Spirit, it inevitably suggests that they already lack Him or they haven't begun. You have to be baptized in the Spirit. But we have begun. If you are a Christian, if you are born again, you have the Spirit and you have begun. You are in Christ. You are justified. You are adopted into God's family. You are recipients of His gracious Spirit. The unintended, and I'm going to use a difficult word here, the unintended arrogance, I think, and it's unintended, but it is arrogant. The unintended arrogance of the division of Christians into those who have been baptized in the Holy Spirit and those who have not, I think, would be enormously eased if the unscriptural use of this term, baptism in the Holy Spirit, to describe a second experience for those already Christians was rejected. Not use that term. It is contrary to the usage of the New Testament. It is confusing in the extreme. And it contributes to division among the one people of the Spirit. So to be baptized in, with, or by the Holy Spirit is simply another scriptural way of saying to receive the Holy Spirit. Let me just simplify it. That's what it means. You look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38. That verse says that every valid and fruitful Christian initiation confers the Holy Spirit. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, if, we, if it's erroneous, problematic to use the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit to describe this experience that I've had with God, what would be an appropriate phrase? How should I describe it? What would be be a more accurate way of saying this thing? I have some suggestions. How about this one? Filled with the Spirit. That's clearly in the New Testament. To be filled with the Spirit. Jesus talks about being so filled with the Spirit that, that he flows out of you like streams of living water, right? Beautiful imagery. And it, to me, it fits with that. I'm filled. Filled to overflowing. How many want to be filled to overflowing? 
That's a biblical way to describe it. May I suggest to you a non-biblical way to describe it? Now, when I say non-biblical, understand the difference between non-biblical and unbiblical. Unbiblical means it's not... It has nothing to do with the scripture. It's, it's, it's antithetical to the scriptures. Non-biblical says it's just not in the Bible. It's kind of like the word Trinity. How many know that the word Trinity is not in the Bible? But it's a word coined to describe what is in the Bible, huh? How God exists, three in one. So I'm going to use a non-biblical term. How about this? I can say I'm filled with the Spirit, or I can describe my experience as a release in the Spirit. I've been released. I've been set free. I have experienced God in a special way. I have realized God's grace and power and gifting in my life. There's there's several ways you can use, several terms you can use to describe this kind of experience that many of us have had. It's a conscious experience. And it may, it may develop gradually. And it may come through some immediate kind of crisis event. But either way, whether it comes on gradually or through some crisis pattern, uh, it should be looked upon as authentic in, a, in terms of realizing the grace that was given when I became a Christian. And it's realized at some point in time. I become a Christian. I receive the Holy Spirit. I've been baptized with the Spirit. The Spirit lives in me. He's brought everything, all of His power and gifts. He's not the stripped-down version and model I got. Fully, he comes fully equipped. Well, when when will I experience His power? When will I experience the gifting? When I have no idea. That's up to Him in terms of how he releases his grace, his power in you through your life. It could be immediately. It could be over time. I think it's tragic that many, many Christians have robbed themselves of blessing because either they have distrusted, they have feared, or they have despised the, uh, these experiences. And a lot of times from, from witnessing excess and uh, what can be described as foolishness. And, and people just, quite frankly, say, I, I don't want any part of that. That's, you know, that's, uh, that's not for me. We see that all the time. You know, we tend, to, we tend to typically want to reside where? In our comfort zone. Uh, to get outside of my comfort zone, yeah, I don't know about that. I like what I know. Don't confuse me. <laughs> Don't push me out of that. Many of you are, are, are victims of me challenge you to take our evangelism class, right? And every time I announce the class coming up, I get, I get um, patient smiles, nods of agreement, but I sense the resistance in the air. And quite frankly, I, I, you know, we all know that Steve is crazy.
he's a he's just a fanatic, you know. You just you know, and, you know, and, and you may never have met him. You've never you may have never heard his heart. You've you may never have sat down and talked with him. But other people have been blowing in your ear about him and have prejudiced you. And you know, you oh man, you just stay clear of that thing. That's a you know we don't. You know, I, I don't believe in that kind of thing. You know, I, I have my own way of evangelizing people when, in fact, you've never led anybody to the Lord in the first place, which is tragic. And so, so, so these supernatural things and supernatural experiences are just like that. We, I just want to stay in my comfort zone. And we, we very, very simply, uh, we, 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 we disregard, we fear, we, we distrust, we despise these kinds of experiences that would challenge us out of our comfort zone. Too many Christians, I think you'll agree, too many Christians have been satisfied with a low level of spirituality. It's just, you've heard this, well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a private thing. No, your faith is personal, but it doesn't mean private. It's meant to be given away. It's meant to be expressed. It's meant to be experienced. It's not just theoretical. It's not just a theological study. You know, you go to Kevin Bryant's theology class, and that's all there is to it. It's just theology. No, that theology needs to be worked out in our life in palpable, personal, powerful ways. We worship a living God who wants to impact this world and impact our lives. Too many people, too many Christians have not allowed God to release them. That's why I like that word. To release them in prayer, to release them in praise. I mean, just think about it. Too many Christians have not allowed God to release them in, the, in their own personal, interpersonal relationships. We're all bound up in our relationships. Even the people closest to us. Too many Christians have not allowed God to release them from the imprisonment of lifelong inhibitions. Things that have plagued me my whole life. I thought becoming a Christian would be different. Yes, it's meant to be different. Your Christian life is meant to be different, but you've got to go with God. You've got to take some steps of faith. You can't become a Christian and just sit down and say, okay, I did my religious thing and, and that's all there is to it. No. Far too many Christians have not expected to see God at work in the impossible. Far too many Christians are functional unbelievers. They'll agree, they'll say, yes, 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 I believe, I believe, I believe. I believe God can do this. But I don't really expect Him to do it. Because I've never seen it, I've never experienced it. And you never will. Until you step out in faith and put yourself at a plane of risk. You lay it all on the table. You're all in, as they say, on the poker network. <laughs> I heard that. I, someone told me that. <laughs> they, uh, far too many Christians just uh, do not expect to see God at work in the impossible, in conversions. All of us have people in our life that we look at them and we say, I'm not even going to talk. There's just no way. That person, no way. They'll never become a Christian. You just left God out of the equation. In, in healing. 
We say we believe in healing. We pray for people. We lay hands on them. We anoint them with oil. And nothing happens. And we don't expect anything to happen. Just in, in terms of explicit guidance. God, lead me. Lead me. And we ask him to lead us. We don't really believe he's going to lead us. And we end up, what, leaning on our own understanding, trusting in our own ways, and we get ourselves in a mess. God, where were you? Too many Christians have forgotten that the manifestations of the Spirit in the New Testament had an uncomfortably concrete nature. They were real and powerful, but people were in an uncomfortable situation. The problem today is the narrow, fearful, unspiritual Christianity in whose lukewarm waters many Christians have for too long been willing to stay. Terrified to launch out into the deep experience of God. Oh man, I just know, I just know if I do this, if I launch out, I just know he's going to make me be a missionary. I know I'm going to have to eat bugs. I'll not have a hot shower for weeks and years. God is desiring to do great things in us, church. He's desiring to do great things through us. And it's tragic if we miss what he has for us when it is so close. So close. But we must make sure that we make the New Testament link between baptism and the Spirit and our water baptism. They're linked. They're not separate. Make the link between that and our justification. We're justified. Our adoption, our becoming a Christian. This is what it's all about. In fact, we must make very sure that it is the full New Testament concept of baptism which we profess. This is what we've been preaching and talking about. And that is literally a plunging beneath the waters of the Spirit, an inundation with Him, and a vitality produced by Him that could cause people to wonder if we are drunk. Right? Are we so released in the Spirit, so full of the Spirit, as other people look at us and say, Are you drunk? What's the matter with you? Are you drunk? And certainly none of us would want to give that impression, would we? Not in Manhattan Beach. (laughs) Or maybe we would. Fit right in, huh? Question. Have we that power in prayer, that strength over temptation, that growing Christ-likeness which marked the early church? and of which the one baptism was the outward bound. I suggest we should make sure that we are not merely immersed in the Spirit symbolically through our baptism, but in our lives. We are called to full surrender to the Lord who is Spirit. We are called to an openness to His sweeping through our lives. We are called to a release of his powerful working, we are called to be filled with his Holy Spirit. And beloved, 
next time we're going to talk about that. Amen? Yeah. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that it is clear. Teach us to be students of your word and to search your word, to study it, to examine it, Lord, to resolve these questions and dilemmas which many of us may have. I pray that our time this morning would clear up some confusion for some, spur others on, and Lord, bring us uh, to a richer understanding of what it means to be in the Spirit. We love you this morning, and we give you thanks. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.